You're listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. The very first national elections in New Zealand occurred in 1853, when there were only 5,849 registered voters. In order to be registered on that electoral roll, voters needed to be male, British subjects and property owners. In addition, they were almost exclusively Pākehā. Over time, the franchise was extended to Māori and women. Today, the current electoral roll numbers more than 3 million people. In this series, we feature presentations which cover a broad range of stories from Aotearoa New Zealand's evolving systems of governance, going all the way back to 1853. Okay, so our, our next speaker, Megan Hutching. Um, Megan is a freelance oral historian and author. Uh, she's a member and past president of the National Oral History Association of New Zealand. She's worked on large and small oral history projects and pieces of writing, particularly in these areas of Pākehā New Zealand history in the late 19th and 20th centuries. Kia you've been reading my website, Shona. <laughs> <laughs> that's where I got your bio from. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, hello everyone, and uh, it's great to be here, and it's particularly nice to talk about one of my favourite topics, which is the women's suffrage campaign in, um, in the late 1880s, early 1890s here in New Zealand. Um, so what I'm going to do today is talk about uh, why women wanted the vote at that time, um, and how they went about it, and then a little bit about why they got it so early because as I'm sure all of you know New Zealand was the first country in the world to give women the vote um, uh, in parliamentary elections. Okay so what I want to do is to start by reading from a fine piece of suffrage propaganda written by Kate Shepherd in um, November 1892 and there's that photo again that Michelle um, showed us before. I didn't realise that came from 1905, so it's nice to have a date for that. Anyway, um, so this is a piece of suffrage propaganda that uh, Kate Shepard wrote in November 1892, as I said. And as we now know, by this time the campaign was nearly over, but Kate herself did not know this. And I'm reading it to you because it usefully shows the arguments used by supporters in favour of women's franchise, and because it encapsulates why women wanted to be able to vote. So she writes, the fundamental principles of a system of government like that of New Zealand are that everyone who has to obey the law shall have a voice in making it, and that everyone who has to pay taxes shall have a voice in saying how those taxes shall be spent. To carry out these principles, our Parliament has given a vote to everyone over 21 years of age, excepting criminals, lunatics, aliens and women. Is it right that your mother, your sister, your wife or your daughter should be classed with criminals and lunatics or treated as aliens from a foreign country? Is it right that while the loafer, the gambler, the drunkard and even the wife beater has a vote, earnest, educated and refined women are denied it. Is it right that educated women can be trusted to teach a school and yet not be trusted with a vote that is given to the boys she has educated before they have her years or knowledge? 
it's only part of the uh, of the article that that Kate wrote, but it's a, a fine piece of writing from a woman who must have rehearsed these arguments until she dreamt them in her sleep. To put the campaign in context, and today I just want to sort of remind you that I'm going to talk about Pakia Women's Suffrage Campaign today. There's a great book by Tanya Ray called Māori Woman in the Boat, which tells the story, their story. I should also say that I'm going to use the words suffrage, vote and franchise interchangeably and, and to mean when I, whenever I use them, to mean women's right to vote in parliamentary elections. Now, New Zealand was not the only place where women, where women wanted the right to vote. And the campaign for women's suffrage was not the only social reform which was being asked for in the late 19th century. The campaign which ended with the passing of the Electoral Act here in New Zealand on the 19th of September 1893 was part of a slow extension of rights to women which occurred in the second half of the 19th century. In 1850, to take the midpoint of that century, married women did not have control over property that they had brought to their marriage. They had to prove aggravated adultery if they wanted to divorce their husbands, and their husbands only had to prove adultery. Women did not have the right to vote. And apart from teaching, the professions were not open to them, and few, few women were able to support themselves independently, financially. The, arg the arguments used by the suffragists had two strands. One was the moral reform strand illustrated by temperance workers. The other was that of equal rights for men and women. Illustrated by such writings as Mary Wollstonecraft's A Vindication of the Rights of Women, published in 1792, and John Stuart Mill's The Subjection of Women, published in 1869. During the 1880s, the extension of women's rights was gradually happening in New Zealand. The right of married women to own their own property and their ability to sit on committees was extended from school committees to liquor licensing committees and charitable aid boards. Women wanted to vote because they thought it was not fair that laws which they had no part in making should apply to them. And because they hoped that when they were able to elect members of parliament, they would be able to influence the laws which were passed. Now, the Women's Christian Temperance Unit is the organisation that we think of when we think of the suffrage campaign in New Zealand. But what did temperance have to do with women being able to vote? To give some background, the WCTU was established in the United States in 1874, and it grew out of a woman's, women's crusade begun in 1872 in the town of Hillsborough in Ohio. This was a spontaneous demonstration in bars and hotels against the liquor trade that turned into a campaign against male drunkenness. And what would have been shocking behaviour at the time, Christian women actually entered these bars and prayed or picketed outside, singing hymns and praying. It made an immediate impact on the public's consciousness because it was so unusual and shocking. And the movement spread across Ohio and into Illinois and to other Midwestern states. Along the way, the campaign changed to one of anger and bitterness about the maltreatment of women who suffered at the hands of drunken men. The WCTU was able to harness this anger and activism and turn it into a campaign where temperance was allied to women's rights. In 1879, Frances Willard was elected president. This is Frances Willard here. 
She was an inspirational woman and was responsible for broadening the interests of the WCTU from temperance to almost anything that touched upon women's lives. Her slogan was, do everything. As a result, the WCTU worked for social reform on a broad front. Willard had great ambitions for the group and she was responsible for sending women from the United States to help set up new unions in other countries. And so in 1885, a representative from the WCTU visited New Zealand to set up a union here. Mary Levitt arrived in Auckland and traveled around the country speaking to interested women and establishing local unions. As in the United States, drunkenness here affected women and children disproportionately. It was mostly men who drank to excess, but women often suffered physical assaults as a result and had to keep their families on what was left of the weekly wage. The member of the House of Representatives for Otago, Henry Miller, made the point when speaking to the House in 1873 on the licensing bill. No portion of the community was so vitally interested in this matter as the females. They were the greatest sufferers from the evils arising from intemperance. And this was not only the case amongst the poor, but even among the rich, he said. As a result, women joined temperance societies. Frances Willard and the WCTU made the connection between removing violence and the vote by arguing that if women could vote, they would have what she called home protection, that is, physical security for themselves and their children. For some women, temperance work lit the fire of feminism, or at least provided those first few sparks. The effect on a married woman of a drunken husband was obvious. Not only was there the threat of violence and the possibility that there would be no money for the household, but women also suffered because it was so difficult to get a divorce. Women who worked in temperance societies became indignant. When the issue of women's voting rights was raised, that indignation became focused. As the historian Patricia Grimshaw wrote in her history of the suffrage campaign here in New Zealand, the comparison of these sensible, good-living women with the male drunkards among whom they worked made mockery of old ideas of the inferiority, both intellectual and spiritual, of woman to man. At the first annual meeting of the WCTU, of the New Zealand WCTU in Wellington, I'm just going to fiddle with my microphone for a minute, excuse me. At the first annual meeting of the New Zealand WCTU in Wellington in February 1886, a paper on votes for women was presented and delegates resolved that the WCTU would work here for women's suffrage. Now the union worked through departments. Each of these was focused on a particular issue and was led by a superintendent. Departments covered a wide range of issues such as prison work, evangelism, temperance literature and social purity. A franchise and legislation department was established at that first meeting in 1886. The first franchise superintendent was a Mrs. G. Clark, and her initial suggestion was that a deputation of WCTU members should visit the then Prime Minister, Julius Vogel, and ask him to introduce a bill to Parliament giving women the right to vote. In 1887, Kate Shepherd, a founding member of the Christchurch WCTU, became the National Superintendent of the Franchise and Legislation Department. In her capable hands, the campaign gathered strength and was ultimately successful in September 1893. So how did they do it? Well, to begin with, they needed support from male politicians because there were no women politicians at that time. 
Kate Shepherd was aware that women work that women working outside Parliament needed the support of sympathetic members of the House of Representatives within it. She developed a warm working relationship with Sir John Hall, who was a member of a pro-suffrage group of parliamentarians, and who, as a former Prime Minister, was an experienced and able politician. And also with Alfred Saunders, who had similar pro-suffrage views. She also worked with other um, members of parliament. In 1886 and 87, the WCTU had sent petitions asking for the right to vote to parliament to be considered by the petitions committee. These have been signed by only a few women. Shepard also sent politicians copies of resolutions passed at WCTU meetings, <laughs> letters of thanks for favourable speeches in parliament, and inquiries about what was happening on the issue. The government of the time was led by Robert Stout and Julius Vogel, both of whom were supporters of women's franchise. So the WCTU did have some sympathetic ears. In April 1887, Julius Vogel introduced a women's suffrage bill to Parliament. In it, women and men were enfranchised on the same terms, and women were given the right to stand for Parliament. At its second reading, 41 members voted for it and 22 against. Catchy heart must have leapt with joy. But alas, at its third meeting, at third's reading, it was defeated by a vote of 21 to 19. At the elections held in 1887 and 1890, women attended political meetings in numbers not seen before and asked the candidates for their opinions on the subject of the women's franchise. From 1887, uh, from after the election in 1887, Harry Atkinson led the government. He was also known to support women's suffrage, but no bills were presented to Parliament after the 1887 election. After the 1887 attempt failed, until 1890. The country was suffering through an economic depression and politicians were more occupied with ways in which to alleviate its effects than they were with women's suffrage. In August 1890, John Hall managed to initiate a debate on women's political rights in Parliament and then introduced another women's franchise bill, as well as moving an amendment to the government's electoral bill. But his bill lapsed through a lack of support and his amendment was defeated. Outside Parliament, however, the women's campaign was gaining momentum. One of Kate Shepard's first steps was to encourage all branches of the WCTU to make one member responsible for franchise work. She tried to keep in touch with these women weekly. Some of them became publicly prominent in the campaign. For example, Helen Nicholl, who you can see here um, on the left, um, in Dunedin, and Amy Dowdy in Auckland, along with Lily Kirk in Wellington. Kate Shepard used these three and others to start a campaign that in its methods echoed that of temperance societies. She wrote to literary and debating societies and asked them to give the question a place in their programme and followed that up by writing papers for these societies to discuss. She instructed her local franchise superintendents to watch in the daily papers for anything bearing on the franchise and to contribute articles or letters in reply. If they were told that women did not want the vote, Kate suggested, she suggested that they reply that if the franchise is an individual right, which we believe it to be, 
If one or many choose not to claim the privilege, it is no argument for depriving me of mine or others of theirs. Men claim the right not to vote and exercise it pretty freely too. One method of keeping the issue prominent was a page edited by her, writing as Penelope in The Prohibitionist. This was a magazine published by the New Zealand Alliance and it had a circulation of around 20,000. So Kate's page was an excellent way of publicising the campaign. She hired page three in The Prohibitionist for the WCTU and used it to promote the suffrage campaign. Notices of meetings were published along with excerpts from speeches and pamphlets and Kate also recommended books for women to read. The advantage of using the Prohibitionist was that it was aimed at women and men, which widened the number of people who might read the pages. She also published supportive letters that she received from suffragists in other countries. Through the WCTU, she had strong links to the United States, but she also developed relationships with the British suffrage organisations and those working for the women's franchise in Australia. It was important to Kate that women in New Zealand knew that they were part of a worldwide campaign for the franchise. Knowing that fact made them resolute in their struggle. Material from overseas was also a useful source of arguments in support of the franchise, especially things written by prominent men and women. Kate realised that a way of raising the profile of the issue with women other than those belonging to temperate societies was to organise petitions which all adult women would be encouraged to sign. The first of these was circulated in 1891 and 10,000 signatures were gathered. The Wellington WCTU president, Janet Plummer, reported that nearly 2,000 women had signed the petition there and that not one woman in 10 of those whom they visited in their homes had refused to sign. Women's suffrage was also discussed at WCTU meetings and those present were asked to sign the petition. One such was at St Albans in Christchurch in May 1891. The local WCTU franchise superintendent, who was probably Kate Shepherd, read a paper dealing with the question in its broad political aspect, afterwards answering the most popular objections to the reform. An animated discussion followed, and several present signed the Women's Franchise Petition, now in circulation, and a few took charge of petition forms for the purpose of obtaining signatures. Helen Nicholl, Harriet Morrison and Marion Hatton did sterling work with the petition in Dunedin. Nicholl reckoned that 19 out of 20 women who were asked signed, and Morrison addressed public meetings encouraging working women to sign. Most of the signatures on that 1891 petition came from Otago and Christchurch, where there were WCTUs which were strongly in support of the franchise. Meanwhile, in Parliament, Prime Minister John Balance introduced an electoral bill which did not include provision for women's suffrage. John Hall repaid, repaid Kate's confidence and introduced an amendment which did include women. This was opposed by MPs supporting the liquor lobby and three Liberal ministers. Hall then introduced a female suffrage bill which passed at second reading with a majority of 25. Liberal ministers did their best to delay the implementation of this bill until after the 1893 election, but failed. They then supported an amendment which allowed the women 
allowed for women to stand for parliament because they knew that this would never make it through the Legislative Council. And in late September 1891, sure enough, the council voted 17 votes to 15 against the bill. This is just a reminder that New Zealand had two houses of parliament at the time, which I'm sure you all know. So there was the House of Representatives and the Legislative Council, which was kind of like the House of Lords or the Senate. The group which opposed women's suffrage on any organised scale was the liquor trade. As the activities of the suffragists brought their cause into considerable prominence during the years 1891 and 1892, an unwelcome realisation broke upon the members of the, of the liquor trade. This unwelcome realisation was that the agitation was being organised by a temperance society implacably opposed to the production and distribution of alcohol. That was bad, but the women had also gathered the support of prominent citizens, many of whom publicly noted that women's votes would have an effect on the liquor trade. The time for action had come, and so the trade became organised itself. Sympathisers would attend public meetings and try to disrupt them, or propose motions against women's franchise, and public meetings opposing the vote were also organised. They even organised their own anti-suffrage petitions. In 1892, the campaign heated up. Kate urged the WCTU franchise superintendents to work harder. And in a piece printed in the Prohibitionist magazine in February that year, she gave an outline of a plan of action. Not only should the superintendents keep franchise literature on hand and watch the daily papers for opportunities to contribute articles or reply to letters, they should approach organizations which were holding annual conferences and ask them to pass a resolution in favor of women's suffrage. She recommended organising public meetings where a Member of Parliament could speak and advise the women to read papers or give addresses on the subject to yourself as opportunities occur. At this time, Kate encouraged the establishment of women's franchise leagues, which were not connected to the temperance movement. And this was seen a sensible decision for a number of reasons. Many women were not interested in temperance and not all wanted to belong to a Christian organisation. It also illustrated to politicians that women who were not members of the WCTU also wanted to be able to vote. So the first Women's Franchise League was established in April 1892 in Dunedin by Helen Nicholl, Marion Hatton and Harriet Morrison. In June, Morrison travelled to Auckland and organised a league there. Amy Dowdy and other members of the WCTU were involved in the New Auckland League, along with women from outside the WCTU, such as Lizzie Frost Rattray. Rattray was a close friend of Amy Dowdy and was involved in a number of organisations such as the Girls' Friendly Society, but was not a member of the WCTU. She was, however, a journalist. She was a co-editor of the New Zealand Graphic from 1892 and used her position as a social editor to discuss issues such as the franchise in its pages. Lizzie's description of the motivation of the women who were members of the Auckland Franchise League is revealing. They were, she wrote, mostly quiet, domesticated women who would have preferred to still blush unseen at their own firesides, had not a burning sense of the injustice done to their sex by the one-sidedness of the present suffrage laws, driven them to make an effort to obtain their rights. 
At a public meeting held to publicise the new Auckland Women's Franchise League, Harriet Morrison explained why the leagues were important. Not only temperance women, but all thoughtful, intelligent women decide, desired the franchise as their undoubted right. It was necessary that they should have an organisation and assure their friends that the cause was separate from any temperance or Christian organisation, a league which women of any religion and women of no religion could join and say, we want the franchise not because of any special thing, but because we are women and consider we have a right to vote on all social and political questions affecting the community. Before long, there were women's franchise leagues in Waimate, Takaka, Fielding, Martin, Ashburton, Timaru, and Gore. And I think it's important to just to note that some of these are small towns. You know, the movement, this movement wasn't just focused on the main centres. And I also wanted to remind you too that there's a great book by Rosemary Smith called The Ladies Are At It Again, which is about the Gore Women's Franchise League. I'm just fiddling with my microphone again, so excuse me. In June 1892, the government introduced an electoral bill to Parliament which included women's suffrage. John Ballance, the Prime Minister, was a supporter. Previous bills had gained majority support in the House and there seemed to be a growing enthusiasm in the country for granting women the vote. So there was hope that this one might become law. Most of Balance's ministers, however, opposed granting women the vote. Public opinion meant that they could not be seen to do so publicly, and so they would have to show their support for the measure in the House and hope it would come to grief in the upper legislative council. This was a risky manoeuvre because they'd been complaining that the council was wrecking government policy bills which they genuinely wanted to pass. This 1892 electoral bill excluded women from being able to stand for parliament, but Kate Shepherd didn't see this as a reason not to support it. In July 1892, she wrote in the Prohibitionist that, although the electoral bill permits women to have a voice in electing the lawmakers, it very decidedly debars her from becoming one herself. We do not suppose that there is one woman in this colony desirous of a seat in the General Assembly, but we scarcely see the necessity of expressly prohibiting women from being nominated. However, we will not quarrel over the matter. Shepherd had organised another petition to be presented to Parliament while the bill was before the House. They had collected 10,000 signatures in 1891, which was the largest petition ever presented to a New Zealand Parliament at that time. Kate hoped to double that number in 1892. The petition sent out, set out reasons why women should have the vote and asked the Honourable House to extend the franchise to them. Organising the petitions was a mammoth task. Kate called on members of the WCTU, the Women's Franchise Leagues and all supporters of Women's Franchise to gather signatures. Those who signed it had to do it twice, one copy for the House of Representatives and the second for the Legislative Council. In The Prohibitionist, Kate described sending the petition to Wellington. I wish she could have seen the petition when it was ready for presentation. In the first place, it was in splendid order, not one single tear or rent in the whole length of 180 yards, the result of getting good paper. I really like that comment about the good paper. There were the inevitable blots, and some of the sections looked as, though, looked as though they had seen active service and would be all the better for a good scrubbing. Yet on the whole, I felt it was something to be proud of. 
and if the weight of it was felt by our legislators as it was felt by me when carrying it from the cart to the post office parcel counter, I am sure the result will satisfy us all. That was an extraordinary accomplishment. The electoral bill took a while but passed through the lower house with only one amendment. John Balance had deflected an amendment from William Carncross of Tyree who wished to insert a clause giving women the right to stand for Parliament. Balance argued that while this was the logical conclusion to giving women the right to vote, it might have the effect of stopping the bill at this stage. Balance himself got an amendment passed which put off the date when women would become eligible to vote until the 1st of June 1893. The bill had its third reading at the end of August 1892. When it and passed, when it reached the Legislative Council, the bill had difficulties, however. Neither Kate nor Alfred Saunders were hopeful that it would get through the council and they were proved right. When it reached the committee stages in the council, an unexpected amendment which gave women the right to a postal vote, or what was called electoral rights, was added and then passed. Now, migrant workers such as shearers already had this right as they often had difficulty getting to a polling booth in their electorate because of the nature of their work patterns. The reason for introducing it for women voters was that those who lived in the country may have found it, may have also found it difficult to get to a polling booth because of their domestic responsibilities. Another argument was that women voters needed to be protected from the drunken rowdiness of male voters at polling booths on, electoral, on election day. Kate was frustrated and dismissed the need for women to be so protected. They could, she said, ride in the same public conveyance as men, could attend public meetings and sit next to a man, and our legislative councillors look on quite unmoved and apparently apathetic as to the dangers women run in their mingling with men. When it came to casting a vote, however, they feel that men who are respectable in any and every other situation suddenly become dangerous to the delicacy of women. And she was right to mistrust the councillors' motives. The amendment was introduced by opposition councillors and may have been an attempt by them to stop women's suffrage being passed without being seen to openly oppose it. Kate wrote to John Hall and John Ballant saying that she thought the government should accept the amendment. It was better to have the vote and change the postal voting clause at some later time. And other suffragists sent telegrams to councillors expressing this view. Kate, however, underestimated the problem. The Liberals, who were in government, did not like the idea of postal voting because they thought it might work against secret, ba secret ballots, which were a fundamental tenet of their political thinking. Balance replied to Kate saying that there should be no difference in the manner of voting between the two sexes and that nothing should be allowed to endanger the secrecy of the ballot. Secret ballots were easier to maintain when each person voted in person, putting their voting paper into the ballot box, but posting the papers, he said, left the door open to the votes being made public. The amendment was passed in the Legislative Council so the women's suffrage proposal had passed both houses. Unfortunately, the House of Representatives had to agree to all amendments before the bill could go to the governor to be signed into law. This was not going to happen because the Liberals were so vehemently opposed to the electoral rights, the postal voting amendment. If the bill had had the support of leading Liberal MPs, it would have passed. Postal voting had not been made compulsory for women voters. 
and both houses had voted in favour of enfranchising women. Right at this time, however, John Bounce became ill and Richard Seddon, who was opposed to women's suffrage and you're encouraged to boot and hiss when you ever hear Seddon's name mentioned, became acting prime minister. When the amended bill returned to the House of Representatives, there was a lengthy debate on which Seddon urged members not to accept the Electoral Rights Amendment. The role of Richard Seddon in ensuring that the amendment was defeated cannot be underestimated. He had a reputation for being in the pocket of the liquor lobby and had resisted attempts to enfranchise women in 1879 and 1887. In 1886, he had made his views about giving women the vote quite clear. I say, if you give them too much power, you unsex women. And he never made any pretense of supporting votes for women. He worked actively, but mostly behind the scenes, to ensure that the measure failed. Shepherd was annoyed that anyone could possibly think that to deprive 120,000 persons of the right to vote is preferable to running the risk of a few postmasters opening sealed papers passes our comprehension, she wrote. So the women had to try again. While repetition meant that they knew what they had to do, the fact that they had to do it again was disheartening. Kate used the pages of the Prohibitionists to rally the women and in November 1892 published the article called Is It Right? which I read parts of you to at the beginning. And again set to work. She conferred with Sir John Hall about the value of collecting signatures for another petition. His advice was to do so because it was a concrete way of showing parliamentarians that women did want the right to vote. He also felt that it was important, however, to get more signatures this time, in case a smaller number was made an excuse by those in Parliament not to support the issue. After discussing Hall's ideas with her fellow suffragists, Shepherd agreed and drafted a new petition with new wording. She began sending out petition new petition sheets before Christmas 1892 so that women could take them out to the out-of-the-way places they holidayed at and collect signatures that might otherwise be missed. This petition did not include the arguments for giving women a vote, rather it it acknowledged that the justice of the claim and the expediency of granting it was, during the last session of Parliament, affirmed by both Houses, and therefore asked the House to adopt such measures as will enable women to record their votes for members of the House of Representatives at the ensuing general election, and not to pass any electoral bill which fails to secure for women this privilege. Women were, she wrote, tired of waiting. They were tired of being told to be patient and to use their influence rather than a direct vote. As to using our influence, we rather agree with that practical woman who said she would rather have one vote than 14 influences. The Electoral Bill was introduced to the House of Representatives on the 28th of June 1893 and had its second reason two days later. Things then stopped for a month while the House discussed the bill in committee. The situation was slightly complicated by the fact that Sir John Hall had introduced yet another of his own women's suffrage bills to Parliament, which was being considered at the same time. He'd done this to ensure that the issue would be debated, even if it was thrown out of the electoral bill during the committee stage. While the electoral bill was in limbo, Shepherd sent the new petition to John Hall. 
On the 5th of July, she sent 25,570 signatures on a roll 766 feet long, which is around about 230 metres. There were more sheets to come, and she was hopeful that the total might reach 27,000. I think in the end it reached over 30,000. When he introduced this bill for its second reading, Sir John pre presented the petition. He staggered into the chamber carrying the enormous roll, which he placed in a prominent position. He tabled smaller petitions first, and then, as they were greeted with laughter, he said another, and began unrolling the huge roll which Kate had prepared. With assistance from one of the messengers, the solid roll was bowling along the floor to the other end of the chamber, which it reached without being apparently diminished in size by the dozen yards which had been unwound. The size of it struck most members dumb. Um, and I guess you probably know, but you can see the petition if you visit the National Library in Wellington, where it's on display in their Hetohu exhibition. Um, and it's also digitised online at nzhistory.net.nz. Uh, and you can, um, you can search that and find out if any of your forebears signed it. In my book, I deal with the debates in the House of Representatives and the Legislative Council in some detail, but I won't here. Um, you can read them there if you want to. Um, the bill went into committee in the Legislative Council and it became obvious that the council was fairly evenly divided on the issue. According to the newspapers, the country waited with bated breath while the council considered the bill. The Auckland Women's Franchise League sent telegrams to likely supporters in the council reading, understand fate of franchise depends on your vote, oh fail us not, and white camellia buttonholes were given to known supporters of the measure. Um, it's not really clear why they chose white camellias. Camellias perhaps because it was springtime and they were in flower, and maybe white because it, it reflected the image of purity and the white ribbon, which was um, significant to members of the WCTU. At the same time, Richard Seddon, and we can all boo again now, was doing all he could to make certain that the bill didn't pass its third reading in the Legislative Council without being seen to do so. Alfred Saunders told Kate Shepherd later that Seddon had promised those opposing the bill that he would ensure that enough of the councillors would vote against it being read until after the next election, which was due to take place in November that year, 18, November 1893. Saunders also told Kate that Seddon's ministry had taken soundings of the councillors and thought that one more vote was needed to ensure that the bill didn't pass. Now, Councillor Thomas Kelly was not going to be in the council chamber for the vote, but had left himself paired in favour of it having its third reading. So pairing's an informal agreement between representatives on opposite sides that when one is not in the chamber, the other wouldn't vote. It was a way of ensuring that business could be conducted fairly when people had to be away or were ill. Seddon wired Kelly, who was then in New Plymouth, and persuaded him to change his vote. That was that one vote that was needed. So Seddon was sure of a success and the bill's failure. The bill returned to the council for the vote on whether it should have its third reading on the 8th of September. Once the council had voted to approve a bill having its third reading, it was considered to have passed in the house, in the, in the council. It would then be referred back to the House of Representatives who would have to agree to any amendments made by the Legislative Council before it could be sent to the governor for his signature after which it became law. So the vote on the third reading, whether or not the bill should have the third reading in the council, was very significant. 
and it's why there was such a flurry of public activity by suffragists and anti-suffragists and behind the scenes maneuvering by Seddon and his ministers. The Evening Post newspaper described the scene on the 8th of September. The bell rang, the doors were locked, the names were called and the votes were taken. The result was known long before the speaker announced it. It had passed by 20 votes to 18. It was, continue, continued the Evening Post, a memorable scene in the history of New Zealand. How had this happened when Seddon had connived to ensure that it wouldn't? It seems that Seddon's cynical manipulations had so outraged two councillors who had previously not supported the bill that they changed sides and voted to support it. So thank you, William Reynolds, and thank you, Edward Stevens. And so, despite Seddon's best efforts, it had made it. The bill then, as I said, had to return to the House because there were some amendments to be discussed. They were small ones though, and had either been proposed or accepted by the Attorney General who sat in the Legislative Council. So there was no reason for the government not to support them either, and thus stopped the bill being passed at this late stage. Seddon did manage to, manage to have those amendments put off being discussed for a couple of days, however. His opponents, especially those like John Hall, who supported women's franchise, took some pleasure in seeing the Premier squirm. In commenting on Seddon's determination not to discuss the amendments that day, Scobie Mackenzie told the House that the course taken by the Premier was unusual. Although the government had won a technical victory in this matter, they appeared to regard that victory with an amount of mortification and annoyance, which is certainly surprising. The Cabinet discussed the amendments on the 11th of September and realised that they couldn't oppose them. So, Seddon moved in the House that they be accepted and that the government would not try to stop the bill being presented to the Governor for his signature of assent. In the meantime, Kate Shepherd was being showered with telegrams. John Hall wired her on the 8th of September to say, bill passed by two, hurrah! And then wrote to say that at last we may congratulate ourselves that our long struggle has ended in victory. Politically, I can now die happy. He sent another telegram on the 11th of September saying that he believed that all danger was past, but Kate wasn't so sure. She knew that Lord Glasgow, who was the governor, was opposed to women's franchise, and there was the faint possibility that he would want to send the bill to the United Kingdom for Queen Victoria's assent. She also opposed the franchise. This was unlikely though, because the bill didn't touch crown rights in any way and only affected New Zealand. The governor found himself the subject of unprecedented lobbying. The 18 councillors who had opposed the bill sent him an appeal asking him not to sign it. Anti-suffrage petitions were drawn up and circulated and thousands of signatures were collected, but there were stories about drinkers in hotels being bribed with free drinks to, to sign it. Eventually, after a delay of three days, because the Attorney General hadn't signed a special copy of the bill, but had returned home for the weekend, the Governor gave his assent. Seddon told the House of Representatives on the 19th of September that I desire to announce that at noon today, His Excellency the Governor assented to the Electoral Bill. And in a nice touch, the Governor later presented the pen he used to sign the bill to Kate Shepherd. Women had won the right to vote. And the next election was only two months away. 
Activity now centred on getting women registered on electoral rolls and giving them advice about voting. That's not today's talk, but again, I've covered this in um, Leading the Way. So why did women in New Zealand get the vote so early? Women could vote in state elections in the United States, in Wyoming from 1869 and Utah from 1870, and in Colorado in 1893, but no other country gained women, granted women the vote until 1902, which was Australia, and then it was only white Australian women who had the privilege. Finland joined the group in 1906, Norway in 1913, and Denmark in 1915. By 1917, more countries were joining in, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and the Soviet Union, and in 1918, Poland, Austria, Czechoslovakia, and Germany. Married women, female householders, and university graduates over the age of 30 were given the vote in the United Kingdom in 1918. But women there did not achieve suffrage on the same terms as men until 1928. Women in the United States could vote in federal elections in 1920, although some states used literacy tests and poll taxes to stop black people from voting. Aboriginal women in Australia did not get the vote until 1962. Slowly though, women got the franchise until in 1994, 100 years after New Zealand women began to exercise their vote, black South African women and men were able to do the same. Historians have speculated why it happened here so early. William Pember Reeves, writing in 1902 in his book, State Experiments in Australia and New Zealand, thought that it was a lucky accident, which came about because of Seddon's political miscalculations. As a result, Pember Reeves concluded, one fine morning of September 1893, the women of New Zealand woke up and found themselves enfranchised. Now this is a gross simplification and Kate Shepherd was really angry when she read it, calling Pember Reeves's interpretation lamentable as well as utterly false and misleading. Success was, she wrote, the result of a well-organized, hard-fought campaign which had a great deal of public support. The interesting question is why there was that public support for women's suffrage. Patricia Grimshaw in her history of um, the women's suffrage campaign felt that there was a growing feminism in New Zealand in the later decades of the 19th century and an appreciation of the need for equality between the sexes. The equal rights argument. For that reason, women became involved in organisations such as the WCTU and male parliamentarians were supportive enough to introduce the measure repeatedly into Parliament. Pioneer societies like New Zealand at the time were less hidebound by entrenched conservative thinking and so, Grimshaw suggests, new ideas were accepted more readily. There'd been a long economic depression here in the 1880s which the country was slowly coming out of, and that may have meant that the political climate was especially favourable to radical reforms of many types. The Liberal Party and government enacted a wide range of reformist social legislation, of which the female franchise was only one part. Raymond Dalziel has also considered the question, and she writes that we shouldn't underestimate the strength of the concept that women's role was in the home. The early New Zealand feminists, female activists, and pro-suffrage males argued from a position solidly based on the family, she writes. They saw marriage, home, and family as the main and natural vocation of women. Political rights were a recognition of the worth of that vocation and a complement to it. 
Darzeel gives the example of Marianne Muller and Polly Plum, or Marianne Kolkler, who had explicitly couched their arguments for equality in this context in the late 1860s and early 1870s, respectively. Many of the suffragists said that women wanted to bring their special talents to bear on public as well as private life. And Shepherd herself had written of the vote as a sacred possession to be used by women for the protection and welfare of their sex and their homes and for the moral benefit of the community at large. There's no simple answer, of course, to why we got the vote so early here. It was a variety of reasons combined with circumstance which resulted in women's enfranchisement in September 1893. But the result was certainly not an accident or a gift. It was something which many of them, many women, had worked long and hard for. Kate Shepherd is the name we know best in this context, but she would have been first to admit that it was the work of many women and men up and down the country, in the main centres and in smaller towns and settlements, in public and in the home and in Parliament, all of that work and effort by all of those people achieved the vote for women in 1893. That's it. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Um, I was recently down at, uh, well, you know, it feels like recently, late last year, I was down at, around the National Library in the archives and it was lovely. I don't know if you've seen it, Megan, but Kate's uh, silhouette is the walk sign of all the pedestrian crossings around Parliament Square. And um, I think that's just pretty impressive, really, a green go for walking this path. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting symbolism. Um, we have a couple of questions. Um, so the first one was, are there records of the various leagues you were talking about, of where the actual membership of the various franchise leagues themselves anywhere? Um, I think there are. I mean, the great thing nowadays, of course, is the wonderful papers passed, you know, and you can fosk around in there in the, in the various centres and um, find mention of their meetings and they will often uh, include the names of the members. Unfortunately, they often recur to, occur, refer to them as their, by their husband's name. So, you know, Mrs. Yeah. Jo Mrs. John Hall, as opposed to, you know, whatever her name was. Yeah. Um, Mrs. Walter Shepherd, as opposed to Kate Shepherd. Um, but, um, and there are records of some of them if they were kept. Like, for example, I'm pretty sure that the Women's Franchise League, the records for them have been kept, or some of them, in uh, at the Auckland Museum. Um, the, you were breaking up a bit. Which museum was that? The Auckland Museum, sorry. Oh, there we go again. Yeah. 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 Um, and, um, and I mentioned Rosemary Smith's book about the Gore Women's Franchise League, and she did a lot of research for that. I'm not quite sure where she found that information. It may well have been in newspapers as well, but it's well worth reading that. It's just it's a very nice, nice little slim book. Um, but yeah, worth, worthwhile um, getting in touch with your, with your local um, museum or your local uh, library just to find out whether or not the, the papers are there. 
Yeah, so papers passed are certainly a great way of, of getting, you know. Yeah, drill down through the old papers. Yeah, mm. Shona's putting the links in the um, chat room for all of us. Um, the other question I've got, how did the franchise work for women after 1893? <laughs> um, well, it was, I mean, one of the great things about New Zealand was that it was universal. So uh, as long as you were over 21 years of age, um, every man and woman was, no matter, you know, their circumstances, was able to vote as long as they registered to be on the electoral roll. Um, so that's how it worked. You you got up on election day morning and I don't know if you had to have a card or something, but you went along to the polling booth and they, I assume, ruled your name off the way they still do today. You got the voting papers and went into the into the little booth and, and, and had your vote. It was fascinating. I was really interested when I was when I was writing the book that um, there was a big campaign because you know they only had two months after September before that first election in um, November eighteen ninety three, and so there was a huge campaign to get women uh, onto the onto the electoral rolls, but also to um, talk to them about you know how to vote and and I think I mentioned when I was when I was talking that um, there was one of the reasons why they why some people who were opposed to women getting the vote was that you know it was often men were quite drunken on um yes on the, on the, the day, election the day. Yeah. yeah that's right um but you can see from that photo that last photo on the on the powerpoint there that um you know they were being quite respectful and <laughs> allowing them to walk up there without or they might have been shouting at them who knows but yeah i can't remember which lecture it was but i can recall someone saying to me that a lot of men didn't allow their wives to put themselves on the roll in 1893 so i was pleased when i saw um kate's you know understandably you'd think all the people in Rickerton would have had no choice. Um, there were a lot of women also in the S's in the role. Um, but it was commented that the 1896 role is more complete in terms of the women of, within New Zealand at the time who are eligible to vote because they would sort of managed to convert their husbands or managed to get on the roll in plenty of time, which mm. um, I understand in hindsight was why the 1896 role was indexed ahead of the 93 role. Um, and the last question is from Randolph. He's a great overview. Thank you. Um, you mentioned the Girls Friendly Society. Are there other social groups important to women organisations efforts in the 1880s? So apart from the temperance, which I know you also mentioned, mentioned uh yeah yeah heaps of them um it's surprising how many really i mean there are some religious religious ones that um sort of like the, the y ywca um and um the girls friendly society um ladies benevolent societies there's a real range of of women's organizations around that time i mean it's a there's a there's a great book called women together which is a sort of encyclopedia of women's organizations from here in new zealand it was published in uh 1993 as a sort of um when we had the commemoration of the 100 years of women's franchise but it's recently been updated and it's i think it's now available online if you now we would probably find it best through the nz oh, yeah yeah but it has it has a, a list of all sorts of uh, women's organizations not just um sort of um ones for social benefit but also you know sports groups and political groups and all sorts of things like that so 
have a look in there, Randall, and you'll you'll be you'll be amazed. <laughs> and, and, and Randolph's got one more. Did New Zealand women's partial suffrage, which I think he means in the sense that um, that they couldn't actually stand to be elected, oh, yeah. um, at at local level, impact the effort to get the national vote? Do you see um, quantitative, collaborative, in, corroborated sorry evidence? Um, I, I I don't know. Randolph, but my feeling is that it must have. I mean, if women could vote in local body elections, then they proved that, you know, the world wasn't going to end um, as a result of women having the vote. And so I, I can't, and also if they were able to be on those charitable aid boards and prison boards and school boards and things like that, people got, then had the opportunity to see that they were, you know, perfectly capable of, of doing so. And so I feel that that can't help but um, have changed attitudes and, and made it seem more obvious that why on earth wouldn't women be able to vote in parliamentary elections? Oh, and I have an apology to make. Randolph is female, by the way, so my right. apologies. Mm. I was wondering, as you're speaking, do you also think that because we didn't have such a strict hierarchical class system in this country um, because of the way we've been founded from a British point of view, not from a more broader point of view, um, that we, because we didn't bring that British class system in quite in the same way, and that because there was a, a much more inclusive society already here, that our culture ended up being less discriminatory about roles? Because um, that's yeah. what you're making think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think so. I mean, I think so. I mean, you know, some people would argue that there is, of course, there's a class system in New Zealand. Um, and, you know, I would, be, I would be inclined to agree with that. But, but I think the perception that there wasn't a class system in New Zealand, I think that probably helped in mm. terms of, um, of, of that campaign. Yeah, yeah and I'd be with you. There's one, but it isn't as extreme. It would yeah. be my... It's, it's not so intense. Yeah, mm -hmm. we're not so locked. Yeah. Well, um, I thank you very, very much. I look forward to reading some of those books too. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. You've been listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. You can find further information on our page at SoundCloud or see the Auckland Libraries website 